All right, how doing? Welcome back to the Cold Seat Podcast, where the seats are cold and the takes are hot. Um, a Wednesday episode today. Um, normally, normally coming out on Tuesdays, but we finished up finals um, on Tuesday, so we're pushed it back a day. Episode 64 today. Um, looking forward to a good one. I think overall it's a lighter episode. Um, you know, we finally got some MLB news, so that'll be a little um, denser section as um, compared to normal. Golf, uh, one big bit of news, but no tournaments um, for the next month or so. NFL injury recap, of course. We are going to go over the college football award winners for each position and then like defensive player, offensive player of the year, stuff like that. It's an off week for the NHL, which means it's a stats update for the NBA. So we're going to go over points, rebounds, assists, blocks, steals, and field goal percentages across the NBA players. Uh, no team stats today for that. And then wrapping it up with the ice bath. Um, so, yeah, the way we have it flowing, I'll hit my hot take first and I'll let you go into the hot take into MLB. Um, my hot take stems from what we're going to talk about in the golf section is that live the live golf tour should only be able to make one offer to PGA tour players. Then once the PGA tour player makes their decision on that offer, they can't receive another one. So obviously if they accepted the offer, there wouldn't be another one, but if they declined the offer, um, you know, the live is now unable to offer that same player more money or, um, you know, later down the road saying they want to add them to the tour for this much more, you can't do that. You got one offer and it should end there because there's too many guys that are coming out saying these things about the tour and then going in another direction when the money, you know, when there's more money involved. So um, at the end of the day, I know it's all about money. I would probably do the same thing for a certain amount of money. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of money involved in this and really the golf world as of the past year and a half. Um, so you can't really fault the guys for, um, doing what's best for them and their families and future generations, but it's definitely tough. And the way the process works is a good bit flawed right now. And I just think there should only be one offer for a player. Yeah, I think it's such, it, there's nothing like it, right? Um, you know, it's not like golfers hit free agency. This isn't like a, Hey, you hit free agency and you get to kind of market yourself. Like we're seeing with baseball right now, you don't, they don't get John Rahm isn't meeting with different, you know, tours to discuss how much he's going to make. It's an individual sport, which is why there's, and, and it doesn't really work this way in tennis. Like there's no, this isn't really how it works there. So it's such a unique thing that there's, again, there's nothing like it. And, um, and I, and I won't, I won't get into the specifics of it because we're going to get to that later. Um, I'll let you get to that later. We can both talk about it in the golf section. Um, but I don't disagree with you. I think there's got to be a more refined process. Um, again, money, it, people say, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. But when you get nine figures thrown in front of your face, it's hard not to take it. Um, and I don't fault anyone for taking the money. That You know what I mean? Um, get it while you can. Uh, right. Money. To nearly all people, money is an object. For the live tour, money is not an object. Um, that's been made very clear. Um, but again, for golfers, like a hundred fifty million dollar difference is a lot. So, um, you know, guys, guys getting paid half a billion or more—it's pretty crazy. Um, it's hard not to take that money, and so I get it. Um, it's also the live tour is easier on their bodies. It's it, it's less work. Think about it this way: you, you get an offer to go leave your your current employer for 
double or triple the money and and you know two thirds of the work, seventy percent of the work, eighty percent of the work, twenty percent to thirty percent less work, maybe more. How do you not take that? You know what I mean? So um, I think you're right. There's got to be a better offer process because, again, with the, with what just happened, and, I, again, I'm not I'm trying not to get into the specifics, but, like, a guy who declines an offer, gets a better offer, it's like, at, at what point do we just – does everyone just go – you know what I mean? So right. um, it's, it's, it's a tricky situation. Um, so, yeah, we can, we can delve into a better conversation of what the solution is when we get to – uh, when we get to the golf section, but uh, my hot take today, which is, is going to stem right into what we're going to talk about with the MLB discussion here in a second, is that the MLB needs a salary floor, not a salary cap. I'll get to the non-salary cap first. Because baseball money is all basically all guaranteed, I don't think you can have a salary cap. Um, there's also 26 guys on a roster, but there's a you know you have five starting pitchers. You have not, you know, eight, basically nine position players. And if you include DH where they're all very, they all kind of have a very high impact starters pitch once every five days. So I think just the structure of the MLB and the way in which guys impact the game, I don't think a salary cap does anything. Um, I, I really think a salary floor is what needs is what baseball needs to fix kind of what we're seeing with big market teams dominating at least from a spending standpoint. And the examples I use are the Royals and, and and to a lesser extent from a success standpoint, the Orioles of the 2010s. Think about the Royals. They went to the World Series in 2014. They won the World Series in 2015. They didn't pay anybody because they because they quote couldn't afford to just because they didn't want to. The owner the ownership in small market team in small market cities like Kansas City and Baltimore. Yeah, they're not as wealthy as Steve Cohen. Who's, you know, the president, uh, an executive at one, at one of the biggest investment banks in the world. Nobody has as much money as that guy. So I, I get that that's a little unfair. That's just that's also circumstantial. Um, but a salary floor would then require a owners to, if they can't afford to pay payroll, get out. You sh- you, you don't get to be an owner. Go on a hockey team or a soccer team that doesn't, or an American soccer team that doesn't require the capital to succeed at a high level. That it does in the major three sports. That's not that's number one. Number two, it requires teams like Kansas City, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, other teams that have been bottom dollars for uh, maybe outside this last season for the Orioles, bottom dollars for what it feels like the better part of the last decade. You know, they are then required to spend money and 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 keep their good players. I mean, look at Manny Machado got got let go and traded by the Orioles because they quote couldn't pay him. No, they just didn't want to pay him. They didn't want to pay the tax. That so I just I think that's the bigger issue when you have half the league that just won't spend on big players on big name players. You then cut in half the places they can go, and not that the teams with the highest payroll dominate every year. Um, the Mets are a great example of that. The Mets had the highest payroll in, in the history of the sport last year, and they were terrible. Um, the Padres had a wildly high payroll last year. And they weren't very good. Um, you know, it, it doesn't payroll doesn't equate to wins. Does it correlate? Sure, but it, it it is not a direct payroll equals wins, right? It's not it's correlation, not causation. So, um, yeah, I think a salary floor is really what we need in baseball. Again, a salary cap, the way that 
contracts are structured and the way that actually, again, contracts are paid. I don't think a salary cap does any good. Um, you're still going to have small market teams not spending, which is the, the root of the issue. When you start in making them spend, maybe a guy like Shohei Otani does consider going to a place like Pittsburgh or Cincinnati or Baltimore. And maybe he doesn't. Maybe he wants to stay on, on, the, on, the, on the West Coast, which is basically what it sounded like. But, I mean, Jung-Hee Lu, Jung-Hoo Lee, who, we, who we're going to talk about here in this, who signed a, a pretty large contract with the Giants, who we're going to talk about here in a minute, like, Maybe he doesn't sign with the Giants if a big, if a small market team offers him that much money. So, um, yeah, that's part of it. Again, like even ownership, like the Chicago White Sox are in a massive market, but their ownership is cheap. When they signed, was Andrew Benintendi? Was that who it was? To like say a yeah. five-year, eighty million dollar contract, the richest contract in in team history was eighty million dollars. That's a problem. That seems like a bit of an issue. So for a team in Chicago, it, this this isn't like a second team. Or or a team. It's, this isn't the Reds. This isn't. This isn't like a team in like the Brewers in Milwaukee. This is a team in Chicago. Or it's it's the third biggest market in the states, behind New York and LA. It's the third biggest market. The Cubs have no problem spending money. So, the ownership thing, a salary cap floor. I think it gets rid of a lot of the problems that we see in baseball today. I think young players who are developed are then retained. Uh, in their cities that they were drafted by. So that's, I think, what the bigger issue is, not a salary cap. Um, I'll let you kind of give your thought, and then I'll, and we'll jump into the MLB for agency news. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a good move, I think. Being an Orioles fan, I mean, I'm always hoping we just spend something on a some guy of quality, and it never really happens. You know, nearly all of our success this past year was through homegrown talent. and I mean, I don't know if we're going to get to 100 wins for a long time unless we sign guys. I mean, the division's only getting better, and I think with a lot of teams in our division being normally big market, it's even tougher. And I think when you look across the board at you know where these big-name guys are going, it's not surprising to see you know big-name teams stay big name teams because of the market because of how much money they're willing to put out for any number of guys and i guess salary floor would be nice because like you said it forces every team to spend a certain amount and it forces those you know bottom five teams in payroll including the orioles to effectively spend more money and go actively shop for guys and not just do it because you feel like you have to but actively you know do your work and get guys to sign with your team because if you don't, then there's probably pretty big repercussions for not meeting that salary floor. And then your money's allocated to resources that you didn't really want it to be. And so I think it'd be big for the small market teams for the floor. Um, Obviously it doesn't affect the big market teams, but it would make the league more competitive and there'd be more, um, you know, more movement within players, which I think is always good across the league i don't think you'd see as many guys you know go from big team to big team or um keep re-signing with the same team i think you'd see a lot more movement amongst players and i think that'd be good as well so at the end of the day um i don't think it's a good move but i'm not sure it's one that they make just because um you know of how the league is now they seem like they don't really want to change much with the current format of everything yeah um like you said the floor 
the thing with the cap is it doesn't it doesn't make small market teams spend right um yeah so if anything it just benefits the big market teams that aren't in new york or la it benefits the the Houston's and and even they spend a lot. It maybe benefits the White Sox or or, or the it benefits the next tier of big market teams, but you're still looking at half the league that it, it doesn't benefit. So, um, yeah, I mean it's, it's been a hot topic of conversation, um, namely due to the fact that Shohei Otani, um, two-way superstar starting pitcher DH just signed a 10-year, 700 million dollar contract with the Dodgers, um. 68 million of his 70 million dollars a year is deferred, meaning he's only on payroll, making he's only receiving two million dollars a year for the next 10 years, and then he'll receive 68 million dollar payments every year, uh, lump sum payments. Like I said, 68 million dollars for the next 10 after that. Um, presumably, when he retires, I think his sentiment is that he's probably just going to retire after this contract, which I think he'd be 30, he'd be 39, basically turning 40, um, which again makes sense. Um, I will say, just to clarify, the Dodgers are not just paying him $2 million. Like, that's not their luxury tax hit. They're still, like, credited, and if it's $46 million a year is what they're being – is going – so even though they're only paying him $2 million, because the entire contract is $700 million, they do a net present value calculation on it. What is it all – what is a lump sum of that worth today, right? What is that $700 million worth in 10 years? What is that worth today? They put it at forty at $460 million, meaning that they have to – Basically, they're not paying $44 million of money to him, but they're still being charged like they're paying him an extra $44 million a year. So there's not a salary cap, but there is a luxury tax cap, meaning if you exceed a payroll of – what's do you know what it, it's $260 million? I don't remember what it is. It sounds about look. right. I don't know for sure. Basically – I want to look threshold in MLB. Let's see, 230 million. Um, so it's a pay. It's a quote. It's a payroll ceiling, and if you cross that threshold, which the Mets did by like 100 million dollars last year, you have to pay a you have to pay a tax on 100 million dollars. Um, I think. Do you have to pay all of it? I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah, I believe you do. I, I think you just have to pay all of it out of pocket. So like Steve Cohen paid 100 million dollars out of pocket last year. Because they went across the payroll threshold, payroll threshold, so the Dodgers are still being charged forty-six million dollars to that limit. It's so that's still the richest, that's the biggest hit in the entire sport. So they didn't, they didn't cheat, they didn't find a loophole. They simply are just deferring the money so that the ownership actually has more physical money to spend. So in a way, like they're still being charged on that, on that, on that cap, and and you don't just have to pay. Like you get a, a like a. You get a penalty in your draft picks as well. Like you don't get to pick in the first round. You go into the competitive balance round. So all of that still happens. Um, it's not just you have to pay for it, but the Dodgers essentially get themselves an extra $46 million in spend money or $44 million in spend money while still losing the picks. So um, it also was Shohei's idea. He offered the same contract, or he and his agent basically offered the same contract terms to the Giants about deferring the money and all that stuff. And basically about the same amount of money um, they were agreeable to. And ultimately, Shohei chose the Dodgers over the Giants, which does make my heart very happy that he chose the Dodgers over the Giants. Um, but nonetheless, like, that's kind of still how the, the deal went down. Um, it was him and his agent's idea. He wants to he wants to win a World Series. He wants to win more than just one. He wants to be 
at the top of the sport winning uh, championships. And this is why he did that. He does it so that wherever he went was going to be able to spend money on not just him, but other good players. So, um, you know, it makes room for the Dodgers to go shine a Yoshinobu Yamamoto, a, you know, a Blake Snell, potentially a Josh Hader gets, allows them to go get trade for Tyler Glass now, or Corbin Burns or Dylan Cease, you know, all these options for them. It opens up a bunch of doors this year for them, um, which I think was ultimately his goal on, on the deferrals. Um, I'll let you kind of give your reaction to the contract and then we can kind of get into the saga of it because quickly, because it was um, pretty wild uh, kind of how this whole thing went down. And certainly, especially after the Aaron Judge incident last year, a, a nice lesson in journalism, I think, for for uh, everyone who covers baseball uh, journalism and the people who kind of again react off of it like we do. Yeah, for sure. You know, Twitter's obviously a very uh, dangerous platform if you don't know kind of what you're doing and if you haven't been on it for a while. Um, a lot, it seems like more fake than real news. Um, but I will say it's definitely, I think probably destination wise, what we saw, what we thought was going to happen. Um, you know, going to the Dodgers, it always seemed like the Dodgers were consistently one of the favorites, if not the favorite to land him. And a lot of other teams came in and came in and out of the race, just really checking in and stuff like that. So the Giants matching the offer um, says something about, you know, their intentions and stuff um, within their division and making a run in the NL and stuff. Uh, haven't really been relevant as of late. Uh, but I will say, I think the contract was, I mean, obviously it's really, really smart by Shohei's camp and stuff like that. And it makes a ton of sense for all parties. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the 10 years, 700 mil which, I mean, he's still going to end up getting 700 mil. It's just as long as he's a Dodger, it's two mil a year for him. And then once he's done, it's 68 a year. So at the end of the day, he's still getting his money. Um, but yeah, like you said, essentially the the deal really just frees up money for the Dodgers to spend elsewhere. So I think it was a really good structured move. Um, and yeah, I'm not surprised it was structured this way. I thought I didn't think it would be 70, technically 70 a year. Um I also thought if it was going to be deferred that he would have still earned more than two mil a year. I thought it would have been like a 10 and 60 or something um, out of that 70 a year. So um, a little less than what I thought it would be per year as while he's under contract. And then if you want to call it void years or deferred years, um, essentially the same thing. But um, but yeah, overall, I mean, I'm just glad he's signed because that opens up free agency for a lot of other guys. Um, you know, being an Orioles fan, obviously, really just hoping for a trade. I don't think they're going to outright sign a big name guy. Um, so yeah, just hoping for a trade. Like you said, Yamamoto is kind of the next guy to go. Um, and I think he's going to hopefully sign here in the next few days. Seems like he's he's making his rounds, visiting teams, and should make a decision um that'd be a another big name guy coming off the books or coming off the board um onto someone's books but um but yeah i mean i think the same teams are in contention for him i mean it's it's pretty standard when you know a big name guy from overseas comes into the u.s wants to sign his first contract you know all the big market teams are going to make a run for him and then based off that contract, you kind of go from there. Um, like another example, um, Jung-Hoo Lee out of the Korean Baseball League, like you said, um, 
six-year, $113 million deal with the Giants. And it kind of seemed like a fallback move after, you know, Shohei chose the Dodgers over the Giants. And, um, I mean, it still seems like a good tra- contract, about 19 mil a year. Um, I don't think – I mean, I honestly didn't know what to expect for a for a per-year contract for him. Um, being an outfielder that's never played, you know, in the States, I think. Um, overall, fairly similar. We've seen a lot of, you know, Japanese and Korean players succeed immediately coming over. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a good deal for them overall. And I just – I don't know what to expect. I don't know if this opens the door for even more Japanese and Korean players per year. Um, you know, we might see two or three guys per year like this that – you know, that come over and sign big deals before they even play, a, you know, one game um, in America. But I think I think it's good for the sport. Obviously, um, the sport is becoming more and more diversified. We're seeing a lot of Dominican Republic, Costa Rican, um, Cuban, a lot of those, you know, a lot of players coming from those countries that are making massive impacts in games and on teams. And I think it only greater brings more attention to the sport in a sport that frankly needs it i think when you the sport really only gets attention from america like it had you know a while back i think this is only good for the game i know they have a lot of work to do with the rule changes and stuff like that and um you know playoff format and stuff but i think overall um these guys signing you know for fairly large deals granted that they never played uh, yamamoto obviously going to exceed um, Jung Hu Lee, but I think at the end of the day, um, it's good for the game. You know, these guys coming in, um, it gives a lot of fans, especially even in America, just new guys to follow, new names to watch, and bringing more attention. Like I said, so should be fun to see um, how they do and following their career paths in the in the states. Yeah, so I, I will sell on the on the Jung Hu Lee contract. Coming um, from the KBO. He's, he's 25 is the big thing. He's really, really young. Um, he gets an opt-out after four years to hit for agency at the kind of the prime age of 29. Um, Shohei's 29 right now. Um, so there's that. He gets, again, that's basically prime age to hit the market, um, number one. Number two, he comes from the NBL, which is the Nippon Baseball League, which is in which is the main it's, – it's the main league in, in Japan. Um, it's where Shohei came from. It's where Yamamoto's coming from. Um, th- I think he would have gotten a bigger deal because the N- the NBL is a little bit more – it's just a higher level of competition for the most part. Um, you see a lot more guys come over from there than from the KBO. That said, the KBO pres- – they produce a lot of really talented players, Duncan um, Lee being one of them. Uh, he's 25, so a lot of potential there for him to be a- an all-star and breakout. Um, I do think he does end up opting, even if he performs – at a, at a borderline all-star level, he, I think he opts out after four years. I think he wants to hit the market again before he's, you know, past 30, um, be able to get that double-digit contract in, in years, um, get the big money at 29. So I think he probably does that. But it's a good gift for San Francisco. Definitely a fallback after Shohei doesn't pick him. Um, I don't know if they're in the race with for Yamamoto. It sounds like they're in the race for Yamamoto. I know he met with – he was in Los Angeles getting a facility tour yesterday. They had like a welcome to L.A. Yoshinobu uh, Yamamoto thing up on like the big board in Dodger Stadium. So he was there getting a tour. Um, I know he met with the Mets and the Yankees already. 
the rumors he's meeting with the Giants today. Uh, I can't imagine he he met with both the Giants and the Dodgers on the same day. Um, I think he's been in kind of Southern California since he got here from from Japan. I, I want to say he got here late late last week. Um, he flew over from 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 Japan. Um, be curious to see where he signs. Obviously, I think it's one of those four. Um, you often I will kind of mention this too. Think about all the guys who have come over from from Japan and from Korea. Um, these are the biggest names. Kodai Senga goes to the Mets. Yamashiro Tanaka goes to the um, the Yankees. Darvish goes to the Rangers in Dallas. Uh, Shohei goes to the Angels in Los Angeles. And um, I'm going to forget the guy's name in um, in Boston. I'm going to forget his name. He went to Boston, which is a pretty big market. And then um, Suzuki is in Chicago. The guys that come over from Japan and Korea, they want they 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 want to. They almost have to go to the big markets because that they want the exposure on a national on an international level that you really only get in a big market. So um, I will say that is just an inherent advantage that teams have being in a big market is with the international free agents coming over from uh, Korea and Japan. Uh, I say Korea, South Korea and Japan. Nobody's no no friends are coming over from North Korea. There's not a North Korean baseball league. They don't really do that over there. Yeah, what's, I don't think what's, so. What's the T'Challa? We don't do we don't we don't do that here. That that's the meme. We don't do that here. Um, yeah, they don't have they don't have a North Korean baseball league that guys come over from. Um, so yeah, I'm curious. I thought Yamamoto would be signed by now. That said, when I when I made that statement last week on the pod, I I, I kind of thought he'd be within the next day after Shohei. I also didn't know that he was going to want to tour in person and meet with these teams in person. Um. Again, for some, I know the Mets already met with him, and he they flew to Japan. There's a rumor that uh, Andrew Friedman, president of baseball operations with Dodgers, flew to Korea. Flew to not Korea, sorry. Um, looking at the Jung Hoo Lee contract, KBO right in front of me in South Korea. Um, there's a rumor that Friedman flew to Japan to meet with meet with Yamamoto as well. So we'll see. Um, yeah, but I mean, basically, I think we get it. I mean, shoot, we might get it now when we record the Thursday Turf Talk in like 20 minutes, so 30 minutes. We, we might get it then. So um, we're definitely on Yamamoto watch for sure. Um, we kind of see what happens there. Um, the other free agency news, um, really the one other other noteworthy contract to mention, uh, right-handed pitcher Seth Lugo signed a three-year, $45 million deal with the Kansas City Royals. Um, he was their guy th- through and through, um, kind of in this market. They wanted to get a pitcher. They wanted Lugo. A little more than I thought he'd get at $15 million a year, but um, probably comes in right around what I was thinking, maybe like 12, um, just for an older guy like like Lugo. But um, yeah, man, they get they get him. It's a good get for Kansas City. I like to see Kansas City spending money like this. It's obviously 15 is not crazy, but it's at least something. So um, hopefully they pay Bobby Witt Jr. pretty soon. Uh, guys, one of the brightest stars in baseball. So I hope they get him paid and um, a good contract for for Kansas City though. I thought. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, another team that is not really all that interested in spending money most of the time, especially as of late, the last, you know, eight years or so. Um, but yeah, it seems like this was the right signing, the right guy to put their money into for the Royals. Um, a guy that they think can kind of take over towards the top of that rotation and a guy that's pitched really well as of late. Um, but yeah, 15 a year really isn't that bad. Um, but moving on to trades, we did have a good bit of trades in the last week or so. Um, 
So the Red Sox, they acquired outfielder Tyler O'Neill from St. Louis Cardinals in exchange for right-handed pitcher Nick Robertson and prospect uh, right-handed pitcher Victor Santos. So, um, you know, just the Red Sox wanted to have a guy maybe long-term while giving up, you know, a prospect and a guy that didn't really see a ton of action last year. So um, just another good move for the Red Sox, I think. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not going to be a move that really makes too much of an impact, I think. But nonetheless, um, bringing in another um, solid piece to that team that, you know, had a pretty poor season last year. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting with the Red Sox and the Cardinals are doing a little bit. Um, both of these teams, Red Sox kind of got priced out of the Shohei, Mar- the Shohei race. Sounds like the Yamamoto race, too. Um, basically, it fills the shoes of, of Alex Verdugo, I think. Nick Robertson's a good a good a good get I guess for them in the bullpen and um, Victor Santos hasn't seen Major League Baseball time yet he's a mainly a prospect so um, it, it probably just could swap O'Neill's not been the player he was a couple years ago um, feels like that his one season was more of an exception not the rule kind of in his career so we'll see if he kind of bounces back in a new environment in Boston and Boston is a tough place to do that uh, media there and fans there are are, are harsh they're critical but. Um, those who can play in the market, they will definitely succeed. Um, so we'll see if he's one of those guys. Um, another two two more pieces of news that trade news that really nothing's official yet, but um, probably going to be official by the end of the day or tomorrow morning. Um, Dodgers and the Rays are in heavy talks to basically centered around sending Tyler Glass, now big right-handed pitcher. So the Dodgers, along with Manuel Margot or Randy Rosarena, one of those two outfielders, in exchange for Ryan Pepio being the biggest piece in return to the Rays. Um, Johnny DeLuca, outfielder, uh, saw some major league time last year, really good base runner, really good defender. Um, going back as well with potentially more prospects, my, my assumption is if it's just if it's Margot, it's a two for two swap with with maybe a, a, a lesser known prospect, um, just kind of fill the farm system for for the Rays would go. Kind of got to take a bet on now. If it's if it's a Rosarena, I think this gets up to Deluca, either Deluca and another hitter, or they or the Dodgers will send Michael Bush, which I think they're hesitant to do, um, sending both him and Pepio. Granted, I think it'd be worth it for them to get Randy, um, but yeah, it, basically the two fixtures in this deal are Pepio and Glass. Now, both those guys, basically the deal is going to get done. They're they're just working on the the kind of the secondary pieces here. Uh, which is wild to call Randy Rosarena a secondary piece in a, in a trade deal. Um, but as good as Tyler Glassdown has been when he's healthy, I mean, he's an ace. He, 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 shooting anchors a, a playoff, a playoff rotation. So um, curious to see what kind of happens here. I, I think it's going to be Margot, Randy or Rosarena. I think he wants to be in Los Angeles. I just don't know if the Dodgers are going to want to deal with a trying to get him paid in a couple of years because of the fact that his agent is Scott Boris, they, they are notorious for not wanting to deal with Scott Boris. Um, that said, I don't think, I don't think it's going to prohibit them from making the deal. Um, there've been multiple out basically. So Ken Rosenthal tweeted this morning that the deal is glass now and Pepio Margot is being talked about right now, but Rosarena has been brought up. It's going to be one of those two guys um, see what the return is for them. But uh, Dodgers have been looking to get a picture. It sounds like they've wanted glass now for a while. Um, they looked at Burns, so we'll get to the news on him in a minute. Um, they were really heavy in on Cease. I just think the asking price for Cease is too high, and they don't want to pay it. Um, I think Cease is going to be an Oriole or a Brave. Um, Brave because I think he's he's a Georgia kid. Um, the Braves are motivated to pitcher clearly, and the Orioles because the Orioles have, 
I mean, it's not even close. I would call it an embarrassment of riches. The Orioles can't get all their prospects on the, on the major league field. They can't. They're going to have they, – I mean, they have to trade some of them. They, I mean, yeah. they have to capitalize on the fact they've got all these guys to go get a Dylan Cease. With two years of contract control, they have to. Given how bad the pitching was in the postseason, Cease is immediately the, the, the best pitcher in that rotation, immediately anchors it as an ace. They've got to go get him because, again, they've got – they have the best farm system in baseball. It's not even close. And, again, they just don't have enough spots on a major league you know, lineup on the field, hell, even on the major league roster – to accommodate all of the talent that they have waiting to be on a major league field in AAA. They've got to make a move. So I, I think that's what it's going to be. This, again, sounds like this is going to go through in the next 12 hours, probably 36 hours, 12, 24 hours. Um, so yeah, just kind of getting semantics ironed out, not semantics, but kind of the secondary deep end of this deal ironed out for both sides. And um, yeah, kind of the expected trade that the Dodgers would make this offseason with a lot of, again, a lot of AAA talent kind of waiting to be, uh, moved it sounds like yeah it'd be nice to see that go through i think um you know the race going in a different direction obviously but i think that uh that kind of frees up the orioles too and a few other teams that are looking to make a move for a pitcher uh, if we see it we see one trade go down for a you know a fairly big name guy we'll say also um i don't think we covered this last week i think it happened right after we recorded but juan soto was a uh, traded to the Yankees from the Padres. Uh, obviously a huge deal for a guy that, you know, one of the best at getting on base, you know, really good hitter, plate discipline. Um, yeah, going to the Yankees, I know, you know, him and Aaron Judge uh, make for one of the best duos, you know, top three duo in the sport probably. Um, I don't remember. I know Trent Grisham went to the Yankees with Juan Soto, so a couple outfielders there. Uh, the Padres got back right-handed pitchers Michael King, Drew Thorpe, and Randy Vasquez, um, and then catcher Kyle Higashioka. So, um, you know, three guys in that deal that have some major league experience, including Higashioka. Um, yeah, I mean, a big, big-time deal that's, you know, only makes – Another instance where the rich get richer with, you know, willing to give away these prospects, even in a lesser degree, because this wasn't a straight up signing. Um, you know, they had to give up stuff more than just money, um, you know, giving up five players, whether their prospects are, you know, already a part of the team. It's a big deal. You know, giving up five guys for to get two guys back, you lose depth. And, and obviously it's worth the move, but you got to fill those depth pieces with you know, more prospects and that gives, you know, a lot more guys within their farm system, more opportunities, especially pitchers as for those five guys were pitchers. Um, but yeah, big time deal for the Yankees. I think that this was probably the destination that it was going to be. Um, if Soda was going to be traded and it sounded a lot like he was going to be. Um, so seeing that happen last week, um, wasn't really much of a surprise. I think it was just it happening when it did ahead of every other move, um, was a little bit surprising. I think, I thought we would see kind of a different type of move, kind of break the seal on the free agency front. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, the Yankees load up and get a really, really good player that, um, you know, had had great success in San Diego. Um, never truly hit his ceiling there. And I think he can in New York in a hitter friendly ballpark. Um, you know, New York and Boston, both hitter friendly where he's going to play a bulk of his game. So, um, so yeah, big time move for the Yankees. And I think, 
it should propel them to make a run this year and another team that had a down season last year. Yeah, the Soto thing, man, it, it, the Padres. We, so I think, I think we talked about it a little bit because um, I, I think I remember t- basically saying that, like, the Padres' unwillingness to fake it till they make it with the Giants and the Dodgers just listening to what they had to offer on Soto killed the return. Michael King is a good piece. Everyone else is unproven. And frankly, I don't know if they make a high a high level impact for the for the Padres. They're probably losing Snell because they 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 get Soto's quote money off the books. He's not making thirty five million dollars next year. I mean, they have to take out a, a, a loan to cover their their short term payroll costs. So that sucks. Um, it sucks for them. It doesn't surprise me that this move blew up in their face. They a lot of a lot of stuff has recently for them. Um, so there's that. I also think. <laughs> We uh, I, we knew since August that he was going to be a Yankee. They, I think the Padres caved because they wanted to have a run at, at, at Snell. Um, I just don't see why they didn't make this move in September. I guess I understand why or in, in, in October or sorry, I guess in July right before August. But there's that, and then basically it was like, all right, we got to move him now because they they basically bluffed, and they said we're gonna wait, we're gonna wait to trade him until February or January. Basically, what the what the Red Sox did with Mookie Betts, they wait, they wanted to wait a little bit longer, so we'll see. I don't know. Um, I guess we'll see how it plays out. Again, Michael King being the biggest piece going back, with no other like noteworthy MLB ready piece, feels like a terrible return for the Padres. So. Um, good get for the Yankees. I'm curious to see if he's going to stay in New York. He's a free agent next year. Going to get top of the market money. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but yeah, the overall deal was solid. Um, it's a good deal for the Yankees. They get the guy they've wanted. They get the left-handed bat they want. Um, reportedly, they might be still in on Cody Bellinger. We'll see. Um, they get Verdugo though last week as well. So kind of see how that shakes out for them. But other than that, um, Brewers told teams they're not going to trade Corbin Burns at this time. Not super surprising. Sounds like that's a deadline deal, if anything. And I will laugh hysterically if they let him walk for nothing. I will laugh hysterically when I think it will happen. They won't trade him. It's going to be what happened with Shohei on a, on a lesser scale because he doesn't play both ways. Um, they're going to get to the deadline, be teetering in, for contention for a wildcard spot, not trade him, and he's going to go leave and sign – God knows where next office. I couldn't tell you where, but he'll go sign next year for something, you know, some massive contract, some other team, not in Milwaukee. And um, I will laugh hysterically when the Brewers let that blow up in their face because they have been, I think, one of the worst run organizations in baseball the last few years. The talent they've had, the lack of success, the refusal to pay arguably the best pitcher in baseball is wild to me. So I think it's hilarity at, at, at hilarity right now. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about this for a couple of years, and I'm just surprised we haven't seen any movement on this. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll see if they change their tune um, as the offseason progresses. I don't really know if they will. Um, I don't expect them to. Um, nonetheless, you know, a situation to watch there in Milwaukee as, you know, like you said, one of the best pitchers uh, could be on the move. We'll see um, whether there's potential for him to land somewhere um, moving on though to golf. So like I said, at the beginning of the episode, um, no tournaments this week, but uh, one of the best players on the PGA tour, John Rahm, he is the latest addition to the live tour. 
which reportedly gave Rom $600 million. So Rom previously stood firm on his stance on, of the whole situation, saying that the live wasn't real golf, you know, only playing three days a week, shotgun start, um, you know, stuff like that. And that he wouldn't leave the PGA for $450 million, which was reportedly offered to him a while back. Um, although $600 million gets the job done, um, you know, the difference between 450 and 600 is nothing to him. Now, to his great-great-grandkids, it might be something, but at the end of the day, still, even then, it's just minuscule, minuscule the difference unless he plans on doing something significant. Um, as for now, there doesn't seem to be anyone else with plans to defect to the Live Tour, although the right amount of money can make for some quick decisions for some guys still on the PGA Tour. I know um, Liv is wanting to target some of the young guys on the PGA Tour, and there was rumors that Tony Finau was going to defect, although he stood firm this past week, you know, coming out with a statement saying, you know, he stood with the PGA Tour. He wasn't um, didn't have any interest in going to Live Tour and kind of shut down all the rumors of him leaving. Um, you know, no doubt the PGA Tour is still loaded with talent, especially with young guys um, like Eberg. But you also have, um, you know, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Scotty Scheffler, um, you know, Victor Hovland, Rory McIlroy. There's still a lot of big, big name guys that can still do a lot for the sport. And even though they lose guys, it seems like, you know, a young guy's coming up and performing really well. So at the end of the day, I don't think the PGA is losing a ton. Now, granted, they are, use, they are losing, you know, some viewership and, um, you know, a lot of John Rom fans probably aren't going to be watching as much, but it's still, it's still good for the sport, but tough for both leagues because at the end of the day, uh, the live toward is still a tough tournament to watch, um, just with the way it's structured and stuff. Um, it's good if you want to see low scores, they normally play some fairly easy courses, but, uh, in terms of the PJ tour, you know, the old school, the true way of playing golf, it's, it's always going to be, I think the pinnacle of golf in terms of how it should be structured, how you play the game, how you carry yourself, stuff like that. So at the end of the day, another, um, you know, player leaving to go to the live tour does, um, mean something, but I still think, you know, the PJ tour is not really losing a whole lot. Um, especially since it's the off season and they don't start up for another three weeks or so, um, with the century tournament looking forward to next season. Uh, I know we covered it a lot last week. Um, they're going to the calendar year schedule. So the 2024 schedule, fewer events, still the same formats each week and a lot of the same events. So I'm looking forward to it regardless of who's playing, um, should be really, really competitive. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, um, Live Tour and PJ Tour were said to be doing some kind of um, merger deal where they have some joint um, events and stuff, but we hadn't really seen that yet. So it remains to be seen kind of what their plan is on that. But nonetheless, a big name guy leaving for the Live is tough. Um, but like I said, it, it gives more opportunities to young guys. One of the international faces of the sport, right? I mean, the guy's arguably the best golfer in the world right now. Um one of the the top five he's an international player he's a big time you know he's a, he's a really really well-known guy internationally too it's not like he's um you know someone who's an international golfer that's really not followed internationally he's like i said arguably the biggest international name um right now so that hurts that hurts the pga uh, certainly um like he said 600 million dollars is it's beyond the generational money and I, again, I don't fault him for taking the extra $150 million. So um, there's that. <laughs> um, you mentioned the merger, like the merger kind of, I mean, it's not just on pause. It, it's, I don't want to say it's dead in the water, but 
we have seen no traction and heard no news about it in the last basically since the month after it was announced. So I don't know if we're ever going to get the get the merger. Um, that kind of feels like a lost cause at this point, given the fact that the Liv just handed out six hundred million dollars to another guy after it was reported that they didn't have enough money to keep operating. That's why the PGA basically bailed them out and, and bought them and mer- quote merged with them. Um, so I don't think it's going to happen at this point. Um, I hope they can find some sort of collaborative event or two or three every year. That would be cool. Um, don't see it happening though, unfortunately. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it, money talks. I don't think anyone in golf should be faulting John Rahm for leaving for an extra $150 million. That is a lot of money. Um, like you said, it may not the hundred, he may never see the difference at $150 million in his day-to-day life, but his lineage will, which I think is, I mean, it would matter to me. So um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. We'll see again what the fallout is in the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't think the merger is ever going to happen. I think that's kind of, that's, probably a, a lost cause at this point. So um, yeah, I don't think we ever see that, but I'll let you get to the NFL injury update. Uh, actually, I'm going to start with the one, the, the only one that I really care about. Um, Justin Herbert fractured index finger on his right hand, throwing hand underwent surgery on Monday or yeah, Monday, um, Monday, or, yeah, Monday, I think. Yeah. Monday. Life. It is a bit of blur with finals. Um, but yeah. Monday, uh, underwent season-ending surgery. Um, should not be an issue that lasts into the into the next season, the training camp, OTAs, all that stuff. But uh, done for the year. Um, sucks to see. I hate to see him get hurt. He's never missed a game. The guy's been an absolute warrior. Probably should have missed a game last year against Jacksonville after the broken ribs uh, against Kansas City. Didn't miss the game. Went out there. Got a couple got a couple uh, injections. Toughed it out. Um, he looked terrible. He looked like he was in pain. He did not play well. And the whole team didn't play well, but I mean, he was still went out there and played. So, um, gotta give credit to him. Um, it's weird seeing the Chargers have a backup quarterback after basically Herbert takes the reins after one game as the quote backup, but it, you know, a little bit different of a situation. Um, Philip Rivers never missed a game in his career. He played on a torn ACL in an AFC championship game. So seeing a backup quarterback have to go in for an extended period of time is pretty wild. It's, it's just a foreign thing to me. I'm, I'm grateful for that, but, um, I'm glad Herbert's not going to play the rest of the year, though. He was getting the piss kicked out of him every week. He's getting beaten up. Um, so, yeah, he's done for the year. They shouldn't win another game. Maybe they maybe, maybe they beat the Raiders this week or we're just also terrible. Um, I don't see how they get a win this week. I don't know if the offense can even score this week um, with as bad as the offensive line's been outside of Rashawn Slater. And um, But, yeah, it's full of draft season for the Chargers. I hope they don't win another game. I think – for the team's sake, they are glad Herbert's done for the year. And for Herbert's sake, he's probably glad he's done for the year, too. Um, but, yeah, that's the one injury I wanted to, I wanted to hit on. Um, but I'll break with the rest of them, and um, we'll kind of talk about them afterwards. But pretty heavy injury, pretty heavy week for injuries, actually, um, thinking about it now. So Yeah, I mean, another week where a lot of guys go down, a lot of big-name guys, like you said, Herbert, who was already dealing with a hand injury. Now, uh, you know, another one knocks him out for the season, I think. Like you said, um, you know, kind of propels the Chargers to make a run for a top seven, six pick. I think six is probably the ceiling. I don't think, I mean, a lot of teams like the Titans. I think it's five. Looking at it, probably five is probably the ceiling. But I think six to seven is the realistic spot. Five is the ceiling. 
That's going to be weird. This this year, uh, offseason is going to be weird. I know last year we were picking back-to-back. Two years ago, we were picking just three picks apart, and this year it's going to be pretty far apart. So that's going to be weird, kind of a different um, way that we're going to go about, I think, yeah. you know, our offseason stuff, especially for the podcast and stuff, just given that we're interested in similar positions but not, you know, similar guys. Not, so not nearly be, the same level of talent, tell you that. Right. Anyway, moving on, um, moving on here with a list of injuries. So Dolphins receiver Tyreek Hill left high ankle sprain probably. Uh, he came back and played this past week, but should play in week 15. Probably not quite as explosive. Justin Jefferson is probably coming back this week um, on a you know a snap count. Um, probably won't play his normal number of snaps, but. Texans wide receiver Nico Collins got a calf injury. Um, He probably misses this week, could return next week. Bengals receiver Jamar Chase with a new ankle injury. Um, No real details on that yet. CJ Stroud with a concussion um, on the MetLife turf again, another player. Um, Probably doesn't play this week, could return next week. Um, Like you said, right index finger for Herbert should be good for 2024. Um, Where is it? Geno Smith. A groin strain, grade two, uh, probably doesn't play this week, returns next week. Kenny Pickett, the Steelers quarterback with a high ankle sprain. Um, he's going to be out week 15, might return in week 16 or 17. Raiders running back Josh Jacobs with a, a right quad bruise and hyperextended knee. Um, probably shouldn't play this week. Uh, probably plays in a couple weeks. Browns running back to Rome four with a wrist injury. Should be fine, um, but this practice attendance is going to be telling Vikings Vikings running back Alexander Madison with a right deltoid um, high ankle sprain could be multiple weeks probably misses a couple games Um, you know depending on how it goes this week they might sit him for the rest of the year Packers running back Aaron Jones with a left MCL sprain could have come back this week Isaiah Pacheco running back of the Chiefs Uh, right shoulder injury probably comes back this week as well Colts Jonathan Taylor running back um, thumb surgery Probably doesn't play this week. Could be back next week, uh, week 16. Patriots running back Ramondre Stevenson, high ankle sprain. Probably plays in a couple weeks. Commanders running back Brian Robinson with a hamstring strain. Should come back this week. Packers Christian Watson, the receiver. A right hamstring re-injury. His fifth aggravation of that hamstring in the last three seasons. Um, Probably comes back next week. Might not play this week. Um, Joshua Palmer of the Chargers. Probably comes back this week um, with a knee sprain. You know, activating him um, should help out Easton Stick, just given more options. Um, Saints receiver Rashid Shahid with a quad strain. Might miss the rest of the season, if not return week 18. Rams uh, receiver Tutu Atwell. Concussion probably this past week. Um, might miss a couple weeks, if not one. Um, Bills receiver tight end Dalton Kincaid with AC sprain on his right side, um, probably type one. Doesn't probably play in a lot of snaps this week, but should play nonetheless. And then Giants tight end Darren Waller um, should be good to go this week. And then Panthers tight end Hayden Hurst, um, obviously his post-traumatic amnesia is a serious deal. Could be season ending, but he's still practicing with the team, which is a good sign. Um, But yeah, no real status on him, nor – um, should they put him out there? I mean, they're not playing for anything but the first pick. So, um, you know, all these guys, all offensive players um, did not go down the defensive side, but 
a lot more offensively this past week, especially. I think we've seen even more quarterbacks go down. Uh, like we said, Derek Carr has been down as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. We talk about it every week. It's just part of the game, and they have to, you know, go to – they have to make a lot of changes to fix this because it's, you know, kind of ruining the sport. We're seeing a lot more teams oh, – when have we seen this much, you know, change week to week in the league to where, you know, the worst team in the league could beat – a good team and then that good team beat the best team in the league the next week so it's like there's nothing about the sport that tells you what the best teams are consistently it seems like the power rankings switch up each week you know the number one seeds switch up each week and i think you know the fact that there's only three teams with less than four losses is crazy with four games to go you know, normally we see at the end of the year a couple teams with three losses, two losses, but now we're not going to see a single team with probably less than four. Every team's going to have four losses, I think. So it's going to be crazy um, come playoff time in terms of matchups, home field advantage, stuff like that. It's going to make for a more exciting playoffs, but nonetheless, um, you know, a lot of teams are going to be out of the playoffs that definitely, you know, are right on the the fringe of getting in the playoffs and making that run and likely blew it in week 18. So this is probably going to be the biggest week 18 that we've had in a long time, um, just in terms of matchups and stuff. And even this week, I know we'll get to it on the Thursday turf talk, but there's a lot of games with, you know, one score spreads. I think there's only two or three games with more than like a five point spread. So it should be a good week. Um, Really the last four weeks of the season should be a lot of good matchups, but it's tough, unfortunately for the league. But like I said, um, that's kind of how the sport is. It just seems like it's becoming more and more prevalent as we progress throughout the season and throughout the years. So um, that's going to be it on this episode for NFL. But like I said, there's a te- Thursday turf talk. That is all we talk about. Um, college football. We normally don't have college football on the normal episodes, but we are this week. Uh, we're just going to run through the list of 15 or so awards that are awarded to the cop, the top college players. Um, I think I think we could just run through these real quick and elaborate on a couple guys. Um, yeah. So I'll start off with the Heisman, which is the top player in the country, LSU QB, Jaden Daniels. Um, deserving of it, I think everyone thought he would win. I think he received like 68, 70% of the first place votes. Um, ended up being closer than a lot of people expected, but nonetheless, Jaden's still you know winning it as he should. Yeah, uh, closer point margin than I thought it might be. Um, but yeah, he got the overwhelming percentage of the first place votes. Very deserving. Um, I'm glad it went to him. If it would have went to Penix or Penix was second, yeah, Penix was second place um, or Bo, I feel like it would have been disingenuous to the fact that neither of those guys were the best player in college football this year. Um, as good as they were, I know their teams were better than LSU. Um, it would have been disingenuous to Jaden and what he did. So. Glad that they the voters got it right and gave it to the, the truly the best player, not you know the best player on one of the best teams. So there's that. Um, and overall, just happy for the guy. He his story is pretty wild. Um, coming from Arizona State, leaves and his teammates basically trash his locker because he was leaving to go to LSU. It's not like he left to go to Arizona. It wasn't a lateral move. This is a huge jump up. And everyone at LSU raves about the kid. They say he's awesome. Work ethic's great. So. Um, by all accounts, he's like a really good kid, really good dude. So um, happy for happy for Jaden, and um, is the rightful rightful winner of the Heisman this year. Um, next one <clears throat> we'll hit on. We'll go we'll go with the Maxwell Ma- well, the Maxwell Award, which is the top player of the year with the Penix. Um, 
I'm fine with that, frankly. I, I don't really mind that he got kind of the the one of the other top. There's three Player of the Year awards. Um, he got one of them, which I feel you know is fine as long as it's not the Heisman. I'm okay. Um, Penix is definitely deserving. He was arguably the second best player in college football this year, or second best quarterback at least. So um, glad he got the recognition. Um, should be an interesting kind of process to follow him as we get into the drafts kind of pretty soon for uh, for the pod. Actually, probably going to be um, in about six weeks. Probably we can start getting into draft stuff in January. So we'll see um, when that starts. But he'll be certainly be a topic of conversation with the medicals, medical history and all that stuff. But um, still a great player and had a, an awesome year at Washington. Yeah, similar to Jaden Daniels, a lot a guy that's been through a lot in college. Um, you know, he spent three years at Indiana, suffered season-ending injuries all three years, and then, you know, comes to Washington and plays really well. So good for him winning that big-time award and, you know, having a shot at a national championship playing uh, in the or semifinals on New Year's Day in New Orleans. Uh, next award was the Walter Camp Player of the Year Award. Went to Jaden Daniels, um, no surprise. Um, Doak Walker Award. Top running back went to Oklahoma State's Ollie Gordon. Uh, no surprise there either. Um, you know, they hardly used him in the first three games. And the rest of the season, he went on a tear. Had like 21 touchdowns, led the led the uh, country in rushing, and was really high up in yards per carry. So deserving of that one for him. Yeah, I, Ollie was easily the one that was going to win this one. Um, thought Casey Schrader had a good run at it. But again, what Ollie did basically in 11 weeks of football was pretty wild, or 10 weeks of football was pretty wild. So um, props to him. Davey O'Brien, best quarterback award went to Jaden Daniels. Not much to talk about there. The Bolitnikoff award for the top receiver went to Marvin Harrison Jr. of Ohio State. A lot of controversy on this one. Um, Malik Neighbors certainly had the better statistical season. That said, I think if you, A, I thought Marv got robbed last year. I thought it should have been him instead of Jalen Hyatt, whatever. You watch what Marvin Harrison did for that team. If you take him away from that team, they are almost nothing offensively, I think. They, I don't think they beat Penn State without him. Genuinely, a lot of their points he didn't maybe didn't score. The field goals and the touchdowns they got, he put them in position for because he absolutely went ballistic on NFL prospect Kalen King. So much so that like Kalen King's stock plummeted after that week. It's like, oh my god, he got exposed. So, um, Marv was very deserving of it. I'm, I'm glad he won. He was the top receiver. Again, if you put him in the LSU offense, he probably he, he may have had 2,000 yards receiving this year. Dead serious. And I think Malik Neighbors is a very he's a special special player. He's a he's a wide receiver one in a lot of draft classes. He's a monster. He's a he, I guess he's a very special player who I think comes in and has an immediate impact at the next level. Marvin Harrison Jr. is generational for a reason. I, he's a firmly a generational prospect. Um, so I'm super happy he won. Very deserving of the award. Um, and again, they got it right on the Blitnikoff this year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you look at stats, like you said, it's neighbors, but you know, Marvin's impact was greater than anyone else's, and uh, it's a reason. There's a reason he was a Heisman uh, finalist as a receiver. Moving on to John Mackey Award, the top tight end, uh, Brock Bowers of Georgia took home the award for the second consecutive year. Um, another guy that had a massive impact offensively and easily deserved this award. Another generational guy. Firmly, um, you just don't see tight ends like him that can block and move like he can and be a, they'll hand him jet sweeps and he'll take him to the crib. He's that good. Um, we will probably, based on what Brett and I've talked about, tight ends might be the first group that we evaluate on the pod, given how bad the position is. We want to kind of scale it. So 
due to the best positions at the end of the, at the, end of the scouting process for us, at least on the pod. I'm, I'm sure we'll both watch tackles earlier than we do them on the pod because the group's great. But we'll talk about them on the pod last. Tight ends might be first. Brock Bowers is going to be a name that we're going to both rave about. Um, one of the greatest prospects we're going to see at the position maybe ever. I think he's going to be a better prospect than Kyle Pitts was, so there's that. Um, don't even get to pick this high, obviously, but <clears throat> nevertheless, Bowers, special player, award oh, deserving of the uh, the Mackey Trophy this year, uh, going back to back uh, last year as well. Outland Trophy for the top interior lineman, offense or defense, uh, went to University of Texas's Devondre Tavondre Sweat. Um, again, deserving. This guy was a menace this year. He's awesome. Pass pro. Run defense, all of it. Um, he was really the anchor of that defense and that run defense that was one of the best in the country. So um glad I went to him. Very deserving. I believe the first Texas player to win the award in, a, I think, like since like the 90s or the 80s, maybe. Yeah, I mean, very deserving, like you said. Um, him paired alongside Byron Murphy definitely helped each other out, freeing each other up, um, making plays, making a name for themselves and each other. Um, look for those two guys to kind of make an impact against Washington in the semis on New Year's Day. I think. They're really going to be the two catalysts to stopping Washington, which has an incredible offense across the board. And obviously it's a strength versus a weakness on both sides. But, um, you know, they're going to have to have a massive impact if they want to stay in that game from a point standpoint. Um, moving on here to the Lombardi Award, to the Defensive Player of the Year. There's a few different Defensive Player of the Year awards um, just from different camps that are voting. But UCLA's Leatu Latu, um, a guy that just balled out this year for UCLA. Um had a ton of sacks. I want to say he was right near or at the top in sacks across college football, um, you know, 14 or 15 about. Um, should be another big, big name guy um, when we talk about the edge edge room in terms of what's a really good edge room. Um, what could be highlighted um, by him at the top, depending on where you see his, you know, his medicals and stuff like that. But there's a lot of really good players in this edge class, and he's going to be definitely one we talk about a lot. Um, but definitely deserving of the Lombardi Award uh, as he uh, had a great season and really propelled UCLA after offense kind of sputtered in comparison to what they thought it would be. Yeah, man. Latu is a guy, again, another guy in, in these awards who's been through a lot in his college career, medically retired at one point, came back. Um He's going to be the, the best edge rusher in the class. It's just going to be a matter of if teams are okay with the medicals. Um, and I'll get to my take on that at another time. I don't want to take time on that. But very deserving. The guys, we had an awesome year. Um, was really the, the the mainstay on that UCLA defense. Actually, had a, a they, they exceeded expectations, um, certainly. And, hell, he got his defensive coordinator a job at USC across town. So uh, prop, props to lay out to a lot, too, for that, I suppose. Um, top center this year, the Remington Trophy. Went to University of Oregon's Jackson Powers Johnson, um, pretty widely considered the center, the best center in the, in the upcoming class, declared yesterday, I believe. Um, guys rock solid, really, really good player, really athletic. Um, something about Oregon offensive linemen were in 58. Peninsula were 58, was an absolute mover of people. Jackson Powers Johnson's been a mover this year for them. It was a big part of their running game and, and having given Bo a lot of time to, to uh, pass this year and um, sit back in the pocket. So a really, really good player. Um, going to be a guy that I think could maybe be a first round player. We'll see. Um, I think he's going to be an early second round guy though. Uh, Jackson probably get a little bit of a draft spin like I usually do, but he's a really good, really good player. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I think probably a few months ago, you didn't really know who would be the top center and he kind of came on strong one by his consistent play and the two by his constant improvement throughout the year. And I think, like you said, uh, a guy that we're going to be talking about when we get to interior offensive linemen and what's kind of a down class across the board for IOL. Um, 
Another award, the Chuck Bednarik uh, Award, is another Defensive Player of the Year award, and it went to NC State's linebacker Peyton Wilson, a guy that just balled out the second half of the year. Played really well across the board, but another guy that constantly improved as the year progressed. Um, was up there in tackles and co- across college football and just had a massive impact on NC State, ultimately ending the season as a ranked team. As, you know, early on, they lose Devin Leary um, in the transfer portal last offseason, and you didn't really know what direction they were going, but they played really well behind a stout defense that was solidified by Wilson. Another guy, been through a lot. As a sixth-year player, um, had multiple seasoning injuries in his career. Um, guy was really battled. Heart and soul in the NC State program. Um, guy there. It's so similar like KJ Henry was a guy who was like Mr. Clemson, right? He's there for a long time. That's been he's Peyton Wilson has been there, KJ Henry. I just it's a guy that we talked about on the pod and pretty well known with Clemson being really, really good the last few years. So uh very, very much a KJ Henry type of guy. It was a really the, the heart and soul of that program for the last few years. So happy for him. Very again, easily the deserving winner of that award. Um next couple here we'll get to. Um, Nag, the Nagurski Award, another defensive player of the year, was Notre Dame savior, safety Xavier Watts. Um, certainly an interesting one for me, not what I would have projected. Um, and then I'll also say Peyton Wilson also won the t- the Buckus Award for top linebacker, but that's kind of a given. Um, yeah, Xavier Watts winning the defensive player of the year award was interesting to me. Um, so yeah, it's. Wouldn't have picked that one, but good for hey, good for Watson. He had a really good year. I just don't know if I'd have picked him to win to win the the Nagurski Award this year. Yeah, a little bit surprising on this one. Uh, a guy that committed to Notre Dame to be a receiver, they convert him to the defensive side of the ball as a safety, and he balls out. Uh, so props to him. Should be a guy to watch um, in the coming years, as I think he's only a sophomore. Uh, could be mistaken, but you know, a guy that just played really consistent, a Notre Dame team that kind of underachieved this year as they were hoping for a, you know, top six, if not a playoff spot with their, with the schedule they put out this year. But, uh, you know, lost some tough games, unfortunately, on the outside looking in. Um, but yeah, he, he was one of the bright spots for them this year. Uh, moving on here, Jim Thorpe award to the top DB. We had Air Force's Trey Taylor, uh, their safety, win the award. A guy that I, I think I only saw one Air Force game this year. Um, they are playing in the Armed Forces Bowl in Fort Worth, so uh, probably check him out there. But I saw the video where they uh, that where they told him he won, and that was a really cool video. Um, obviously, being Air Force, um, don't really know a whole lot about him, but I mean, you win this award for a reason, and to win this award at a non-Power Five is a big deal. And I think he's got some legit um, talent and work ethic to you know to win that award being you know at a smaller school. No, I, it's cool to see him win. Um, I feel salty for Will Johnson because he was the best corner in the country, the country again this year. Um, other finals were Cooper DeGene, uh, defensive back from Iowa, and uh, safety Malachi Starks from Georgia. So um, thought DeG- if DeGene would have finished the year, he may have been, he may have won it. Um, just as good as he was, as versatile as he was. Um, nonetheless, I think he may have won the top returner. I know we're not talking about it. I think he. Did he win the top? I don't I know. There's I didn't an award see the award. I didn't see a. I'm sure he did. If the, I, I don't know. I can look while we talk about kickers. But um, the Lou Groza Award went to Miami, Ohio's Graham Nicholson. And then the Greg Guy Award went to Iowa's punter, Troy Taylor. Listen, had to go to Iowa's punter, man. They punted. They need to set a record for most punts this year, like in the 21st century. So I had to. Um, I'll let you talk. I'll let you talk on those guys. But 
I, I am glad to see the Miami-Ohio kicker win it as being a non-Power 5 guy. Yeah, no doubt. I think a lot of people going into the year, um, you know, Will Reichert of Bama is the all-time Alabama points score leader. Um, so as a top kicker, I think seeing a Miami-Ohio, another non-Power 5 guy, win an award is a big deal. Um, obviously, you know, did some legit things this year, probably from a percentage standpoint, touchback percentage. Um, you know, those are kind of the main metrics you look at for place kickers and field goal kickers and stuff like that. Um, Ray Guy Award for the top punter, like you said, no one probably punted more than Iowa. Uh, I know Texas Tech punter Austin McNamara was a you know top five punter in the country uh, the past couple of years, and um, as he declares for the NFL draft, should be a name to keep look out for, special teamer wise. Um, but yeah, Troy Taylor I think is another guy that, um, yeah, I mean just probably had good percentages inside of the 20, inside of the 10, average net you know net punt yardage and stuff like that. Um, you know, we're probably all up there and most definitely deserving of the award. So um, I think that pretty much wraps up college football awards. Um, it does. We don't have any, any NHL this week, as we'll have a standings update next week and an off week next week for the NBA. But um, to wrap it up, we'll speed it up a little bit here. Um, for a stats update, we have six metrics. We are ranking um, with the top five players currently through December 12th across the NBA. Um, kick it off with points per game. And fifth, we have Oklahoma City's Shea Gilgis-Alexander, um, who's making an MVP push, you know, just having a massive impact on that team, averaging 30.4. Of course, Giannis um, of the Bucks is up there at 30.6. KD from the Suns at 31. Luka Doncic on the Mavs, um, putting out good games every every game. Um, you know, good stat lines loaded between assists and points and normally rebounds um, at 32 and then Embiid um, just a force in the paint a lot of guys can't play the game the way he does and at least to a lot of mismatches down low um, 33.4 leading the way through uh, what's about two months yeah no shocks here uh, Embiid leading the way is um, a not surprising guy you know gonna be an MVP caliber guy so uh, we will uh, we'll see if I'm assuming he's gonna hold here for a while Next one up here is rebounds per game. Uh, Joel Embiid making another list here at 11.5, number five. DeBontis Sabonis of the Kings at 22.2, tied with Rudy Gobert at 22.2 rebounds a game. Anthony Davis and Nikola Jokic then tied at number one uh, for 12.6 rebounds a game. So um, not a shock here. Jokic being on this list is pretty wild. Um, going to be on the next list, which is even crazier that he's going to, again, average a triple-double this year, um, potentially, which is which is insane. So, um yeah, man, AD, AD and Jokic being tied for the top really doesn't shock me. AD will stay up here if he stays healthy all year, so I mean, there's that. And then Gobert, Sabonis, and Embiid, again, it's all going to be big guys, so um, no shocks there to me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Sabonis was a guy that I think led the league in rebounds last season. Um, you know, just a high-effort guy through and through. Not really a true center, I don't think, but a lot of these guys – um, going to be up there year to year. Um, look out for Wembenyama too. I will say, um, not really a true center, um, but just from a height standpoint, he can play yeah. since they moved him to center. Uh, he's averaging 19 rebounds a game, so um, he could make this list. You know, the next time we do it in three weeks, but nonetheless, these five guys, I mean, are going to be up there the whole year, if not, you know, in the top eight uh, assists per game. We have Fred Van Vliet of the Rockets. A uh, good signing for them this past year at eight and a half. Luca at 8.9 Jokic is at 9.4 Trey Young always up there at 10 and a half and then Tyrese Halliburton from the Pacers at 12.3 Tyrese has been balling all year um 
just another guy that constantly improves year to year. He had a great year last year and improving on that this year. Yeah, I mean, he's been arguably the best point guard in the league. Um, he's uh, he's scoring at a really high clip this year. I think if the Pacers can make a push for a top seed in the East. He's going to have a, a quietly, a really good MVP season potentially. Um, and, you know, the rest of these guys, not a huge shock. But Jokic at 9.4, dude, it's crazy. Um, I keep saying it every time I talk about it, but it's wild. I'm um, getting the blocks per game. Walker Kessler of the Jazz and Rudy Gobert of the Timberwolves tied at two and a half blocks a game at number four. Anthony Davis, the Lakers, 2.7 blocks a game at three. And then tied at number one is Brooke Lopez of the Bucks and Victor Romanyama of the Spurs at 2.8 blocks a game. Um, all these guys are going to be in the defensive player of the year conversation. Obviously, Brooke Lopez, AD, Rudy Gobert, all guys who have won or have been in contention to win a defensive player of the year award. Walker Kessler, a young guy who's going to be probably winning a DPOI award in his career. And Victor Romanyama is a guy who people have already pegged as a DPOI candidate as a rookie, just given steals in the blocks, um, really impressive defender, can defend all five positions. So um, certainly going to be guys going to be a mainstay on this list. And again, these should be the five guys who will hover around the top five to seven probably all year. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, you're going to see pretty much just power forwards and centers on that list as a, you know, the, the sheer height advantage. And um, even though if they lack a little bit of athleticism, they make up for it and, you know, sheer wingspan and stuff like that to, you know, give them a good bit of blocks each game. Um, steals per game is normally just goes to the quickest, most anticipating guys that play, um, you know, a good bit of minutes. Scotty Barnes of the Raptors is tied with Paul George of the Clippers um, in fourth at 1.7. Scotty's been incredible. Um, I think any team would love to have him. He's been really, really good for the Raptors. Um, Jalen Suggs, a young guy on the Magic um, at 1.8 and third. Donovan Mitchell on the Cavs now, um, 1.9 and second. And then SGA of the Thunder is at one with 2.8. Um, leading by a whole, basically a whole steal per game, which is crazy. Um, super quick, you know, top five in points and leading the league in steals is going to get you a lot of um, attention, some MVP votes. Like I said earlier, I should be a front runner for that. But nonetheless, um, this list may move around a good bit. Maybe not SGA because he's in the lead by a lot, but, you know, two through five is probably going to switch a good bit. Yeah, I mean, when a stat's under two per game, a guy could have a game where he goes off and is going to elevate his stats. So, like I said, outside of Shy being number one, probably see a lot of movement there from two through five and pushing him down to ten probably. Uh, field goal percentage here, going to be a lot of big guys in this list. Ivaka Zubats of the Clippers at 62.6%. Mark Williams of the Hornets at 64.9%. Jared Allen of the Cavaliers at 67.1%. Jakob Pertle of the, of the Raptors at 72.4%. And Derek Lively, the second of the Dallas Mavericks at 73.7%. Um, usually all, all going to be you know, big guys mainly because they take shots that are a lot closer to the rim. So you higher percentage looks. Uh, oftentimes they get dump offs. They just kind of put them off the glass back up and into the bucket. So, Ken, we'll see. Rarely do we see guards anywhere near this list. You have a guard that shoots over 60% of the year. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's absurd. If they're like, because you got to put up X number of shots per game to be on this list. Um, so it's all starting big guys who, who are probably scoring in the double digits, right about 10, 12, 15 per game, uh, maybe pushing 20. But like, if you see a guard in this list who's taking the minimum shots required to be on the list, absurd scoring numbers. It, it's almost unheard of. Yeah, I mean, this is almost exclusively going to be your fours and fives. 
um, that we're seeing here. I thought about, you know, obviously we're talking about six stats. I thought about making this sixth one kind of a rotational one where we oh, yeah. add a different stat each week just because this is so uh, favorable to the big guys. You know, we have blocks that are favorable to, to big guys, but we also have steals, which is favorable to guards. And obviously you have to include points, rebounds, and assists. So I think about making the sixth stat kind of a rotating one where we'll include maybe like passes per game or true field goal percentage, three-point percentage. We'll kind of rotate the stats each time. Could even do, uh, could even do plus minus. Right, right. For qualified minutes, right? You know what I mean? So Yeah. So yeah, look for look for the sixth one, uh, the final stat to be different next time around. That'll do it for NBA. Uh, wrapping it up real quick. Um, both our takes are football-related, um, which we will – fill y'all in uh, more on the football front tomorrow when our Thursday turf talk comes out. Uh, but mine real quick is that this stretch of the NFL season is about pushing for a draft pick or, you know, pushing for a Super Bowl. Uh, in very few cases, will a team fall outside one of those two categories? I think we're seeing maybe two teams that aren't really in either position. Um, you know, really the NFC South outside of, you know, one team and then really no one outside of that. So for contending teams, the playoffs essentially start now. Uh, while for non-contenders, the draft season basically starts now. Uh, you know, kind of these last four to five weeks is when all their teams, pretty much their intentions are clear. Um, you know, their goals are clear in terms of realistic. And I think, you know, if you're a team pushing for a playoff seed, pushing for a division, you can't afford to lose a game down the stretch, you know, in this final month of the season. Whereas if you're pushing for, you know, a draft pick or you're pushing for um, just draft position overall, I think, if you win a game, it just sets you back four to five picks, even with one loss because of how congested, you know, that four to 11 range is right now, all within like two games. Um, so, yeah, it's very finite um, goals for every team, I think, when you look at it across the board. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like you said, it's you're either you're either draft focused about you want to lose games or you want to win games. There's really no team that's indifferent right now. Um I hope the Chargers don't win another game. Um, I'd like to be picking in the top five, top six, top seven. Um, I think seven is probably realistic. Um, six and seven is realistic. Eight would be, given the Sims that I've done, eight would be a little a little tough. Um, I'd like to be picking seven or higher. Um, basically, reason being, it would secure the Chargers one of um, Bowers, Alt, Neighbors, uh, Olu, or um, Johnny Newton. Basically, it's or ACI at seven. So. Um, just a little easier to project that, uh, outside of that though, or sorry, it would secure them at seven. It would secure them one of all Bowers, Fashanu, Marv or neighbors. Um, all guys I think stepping in are immediately pro bowl level caliber guys. Um, yep. so there's that, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's, it's playoff time or it's draft time for teams at this point. So, um, my, uh, my ice bath this week, college football related Taj Brooks announced he's returning the Texas Tech for, for a final year of eligibility, his fifth year of eligibility. Uh, his COVID guy came in as a COVID, um, COVID freshman, same year that we did. So um, there have been some rumblings on uh, kind of on campus, around campus, that he might stay. Um, the longer we went without him declaring, I feel like there was a better chance was he was going to get kind of come back for his last year. And the biggest thing was like there was no senior bowl in the talk with him. There was no um, – What's the other one? I'm going to forget. What's the one in Vegas? The Shrine Bowl? Yeah, the Sh- yeah, Shrine Bowl. There's no Shrine Bowl talk. There's no, like, I mean, he would have been in one of those, too. So there's no talk for that. It kind of felt like he was going to come back. There were some rumblings kind of around campus. He might come back. So um, glad he's back. 
he should graduate as the all-time Texas Tech leading rusher. And um, yeah, I'm super happy about it. Super pumped. Glad he's back. The team is immediately much better next year with him back. So we'll see. Um, that wraps it up, though. Long episode today, but <clears throat> pardon me. Um, getting a really, really good look at the MLB. Obviously, the show a contract is massive, and then you've got kind of the after effects of it. Um, I will give you an update on the Dodgers push for Yamamoto. Uh, Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, and Shohei Otani were all in attendance yesterday uh, to give the sales pitch to Yamamoto at Dodger Stadium, as well as Will Johnson. Will Johnson. I'm looking at a, at a Mich- at, at, oh, Michigan Will Johnson stat right now on um, one of my other monitors. Will Smith, uh, Dodgers catcher, was there. As well, a guy who would obviously I'm going to be, be catching uh, have behind the plate as his backstop. So um, four of the Dodgers, probably their four best players um, for an attendance. I mean, obviously Walker Buehler wasn't there. Um, Kershaw is not a Dodger technically right now. So their four current best players are there. Um, given the pitch to them, all of them make sense to be there. Obviously the big three. And then you get his his catcher, presu- you know, catcher, would-be catcher. Um, and Will Smith there. So certainly uh, – Making a strong run at him, uh, but I guess we'll probably see in the next couple of days where he ends up. Thought I'd get a little tidbit before we get out of here. But um, Thursday turf talk, we're about to go take like a five minute break, figure out all of our plan for that, and then get it recorded. And then it'll come out tomorrow morning. Um, this will be out hopefully pretty soon. Probably between our break, we'll get this posted. So we will. Uh, for us, it'll be like 20 minutes. But for you guys, we'll see you guys tomorrow. And um, I'll let Brett give any closing thoughts, and we'll uh, we'll get out of here. Yeah, you know. Um a good bit of a loaded episode. I think we kind of crammed a good bit in, even with without having an NHL this week. Um, you know, next week should probably be lighter, just given that Shohei's already signed. Probably have a couple signings, but probably run through them fairly quickly. And then, um, yeah, like you said, stay tuned for Thursday Turf Talk, episode 17 already. Um, yeah, we should have that, like you said, tomorrow morning per usual. Um, just had to push this one back a day, like I said, finishing up finals yesterday um thank you all for tuning in follow us on social media um x and instagram mainly at cold seat podcast stay up to date on a lot of the latest stuff and we'll see you all tomorrow later